Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And it's October 18th, 2018. On this week's show, where to move if you want to get a job in film, how to get started on your documentary, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Everybody, welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. We are here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. And Eric, yes, I have news this week. Yeah. I know last week everyone was a. Uh, it was a real cliffhanger where I said that I was expecting a niece to be born and that I would become an uncle for the first time. Well, last Thursday, the day the podcast came out, uh, so did the baby. The baby <laughs> hey, also came a out. A star is born. A star is born. It, a star is Bryn. Her name is Bryn. Oh, that's good. So thank and you. she says Gaga. And she says Gaga. Those were her first words. So it's pretty <laughs> incredible. Uh, yeah, so she was born at 5'11 on 10'11. Ooh. And she's uh, now going to start listening every week. She she had, she had was going to do an Ask No Film School question, but she doesn't know how to speak yet. So, <laughs> oh. but she's, Okay, we'll give her like a couple months. Exactly. So shout out to Bryn. Uh, she's now about six days old. So she's Mazel already on the tough. health insurance and everything. She's going to get a social security number. This is terrific. I didn't know that you do these things this early, but congratulations to everyone involved. I mean, everyone involved. You and know? the doctors, the, the doctors, nurses. The doctors, the nurses. Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. Congratulations, you little monsters. <laughs> oh, well, I have some big news, too. You know, I haven't done a weather report here it's in true. a while. But it, now, I mean, last week. How is it feeling? Listen, it dropped from 80 degrees to 50 degrees in one week. And you know what that means. It is fall, people. Oh, God. And then it's like, I have some sweaters, but I don't want to take out my big, like, wintry jackets yet. And it's we're not there at that It's the moment. middle time. That's what yeah. you need a leather jacket for. A leather I have jacket? My, I have my cool leather motorcycle jacket, and this is the time of year. Were you in a production of Grease in high school, or did you just... <laughs> I got to get one of those. It probably is, like, the movie I've watched the most times of any movie, embarrassingly uh, hey, enough. Grease <laughs> is the word. It is. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I guess we'll get into, you know, other kinds of much more boring headlines than... <laughs> <laughs> pretty exciting than stuff. personal ones. Um, um, we're often having the L.A. versus New York debate here at No Film School. Ryan Koo recently left us for Palmier Shores. John's out visiting La La Land now, which is why he's not with us on the show. And we are holding down the fort in Brooklyn. Meanwhile, guess where Netflix just bought a big studio where it plans to spend over a billion dollars on production over the next 10 years? Not L.A., not New York, but Albuquerque, New Mexico, home of our very own and apparently prescient longtime No Film School writer Chris Boone. So the streaming giant announced last week that it's buying an existing studio that originally opened in 2007, and it consists of eight sound stages, production offices, and a backlot, making it appropriate for episodics and feature films alike. According to IndieWire, New Mexico has become a major production hub, with Hollywood taking advantage of the Western landscape and generous tax incentive to make everything from Breaking Bad to the Avengers. So Netflix is not, like, inventing the wheel here. One thing that's surprising about this is that you might remember that just last year we talked on the show about how Netflix was investing in production in L.A. in order to attract high-level talent who would be excited to not have to travel to some random cities for shoots. And in fact, The Wrap noted that the Los Angeles area experienced a third consecutive quarter of increased film production, rising 11% from the same period in 2017. But Albuquerque is a mere two-hour flight from L.A., and that 25 to 30% tax incentive is hard to beat. So what does it mean for us? Well, for one, if you want to work in physical production, you might want to consider a move to New Mexico or even a part-time move during heavy production times. 
there's going to be a need for experienced crew. But IndieWire also reports that the Albuquerque Film Office is working with Netflix to start a crew training program that will help locals partake in the upwards of 1,000 new jobs that Netflix plans to bring to the state every year. So who knows? Maybe one day our show open will say, Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, coming at you from downtown Albuquerque, New Mexico, home of no film school. Wait, we're moving? Who knows, I said. Oh, who okay, okay. Knows? I'm just, I'd love to go to Roswell, New Mexico, but it's great that they're creating a thousand, a thousand, upwards of a thousand new jobs and that they are going to hire some of the more local talent, I guess, local crew and things of that nature. I think it's uh, really great. I mean, this is exactly what it takes to make a city a production hub. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of jobs and Netflix, uh, Netflix is also in a little bit of hot water this week over some of their other hiring practices, and it's been made public in a way that's rarely been seen before. Even legal action may be being threatened. Uh, that's right, Netflix is being accused of poaching employees away from other companies, and those scorned companies are no longer having any of it. As Variety reports, Netflix announced last week that it had hired Momita Sengupta as vice president of physical production for its original series. Sengupta had worked for 10 years at Viacom, most recently overseeing physical production at Comedy Central, Spike, MTV, and VH1. In the suit filed, Viacom alleges that Netflix in induced Sengupta to breach her contract, which was not set to expire until April of 2020. Netflix has signaled that it has no intention of complying with the law and that its illegal attempts to induce Viacom employees to break their contracts without consequence will not be limited to Sengupta, the Viacom attorney said. Netflix's Interference with an enforceable team employment agreement is neither trailblazing nor innovative. Rather, it's just another example of Netflix's utter contempt for the law of the state of California. It's pretty heavy words. Uh, And it's rare to see this kind of dispute between two major conglomerates being held so publicly. But it does shine light on the legal practices in play here and the pushback Netflix is receiving. I I never really thought about the legalese involved in a contract in this manner, but it makes sense. And Netflix actually has a history of doing this. Uh, Variety had noted that in 2016, 20th Century Fox sued Netflix for hiring two employees before their contracts had concluded. Uh, so obviously you can't break a contract, but it's also interesting that seemingly Netflix is hiring these top execs from other major production companies before their time is up. I don't know if poaching is a strong word to use. I don't uh, really understand what, what the issue is. I mean, yeah, it sort of stinks for these companies that Netflix is choosing them, but uh, that Netflix is, 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 I guess, poaching their employees. But isn't it ultimately up to the employees whether they stay or break the contract? Like, why is Netflix legally responsible for this? I, I wonder if it is completely... You're right. I, I wonder if the legal issue lies with the person who is committing the breaking of contract. Uh, but if Netflix is seeming to be the one who is you know, tempting that. Uh, I don't know if they would actually be having a legal battle, but it does sound like, yeah, you're right, that the people involved would be the, the employees leaving would be the ones who would get the brunt of that. And why would you, of course, Netflix is cool to work at, but they're coming from Viacom, they're coming from other major companies. Uh, It seems a little weird that they would take that risk, if you will. Um, But it seems interesting that that was actually a news story, uh, which I I don't know, I feel like this is not something we hear said publicly often. Uh, In some interesting news that may not be completely apparent to us here in New York, movie ticket prices have actually gone down in the United States over the year's third quarter, dropping to $8.83. And you ask, you know, how could this be? Because in New York, ticket prices average about $15, if maybe not average, but, you know, for adults, you know, $15, if not more. And while it's true that 
tickets are much cheaper throughout other parts of the country. That's actually not the main reason for the drop in ticket prices. Uh, Variety reports that it actually has to do with the increased amount of children's fare that performed strongly at the box office over the past summer. Really? So, I would have guessed it was like the movie pass phenomenon. That would have, you know what, that would have been a reason, but I guess that wouldn't affect the ticket price, you know, for movie pass. Average U.S. movie ticket prices fell slightly during the third quarter of the year to $8.83, which is down a dime and from the same quarter a year ago and 55 cents below the all-time high of $9.38. So they're attributing this to the success of family-oriented films like Hotel Transylvania 3, Summer Vacation. That's one movie. Uh, Christopher Robin, <laughs> Smallfoot, and, okay, for Variety, this is not a children's movie. Mama Mia, Here We Go Again? I wonder if a lot of kids went to that. I guess it's family-oriented. Family, that's true. Not for little kids. That's true, but Cher is in it, so who doesn't love Cher? Uh, they're claiming that those films drove the price decline due to the increased number of children's and matinee tickets for family films. So Monday's release of third-quarter data also reinforces the success of the 2018 box office, which is actually up 9% over last year to $9.32 billion. Third quarter emissions spiked 7% to $307 million, and box office increased by 6% to $2.71 billion. So while ticket prices have technically gone down, the box office grosses have gone up, which is actually paving the way for 2018 to surpass 2017 in total domestic grosses. So again, if you're in New York or L.A., as we mentioned, you're probably not feeling that a lot uh, because it is super, super expensive. But the average ticket is $8.83 in this country which is makes me feel sad. <laughs> I didn't even think matinees were a thing anymore. Like, I, I think in New York, if you go to the very first showing of the day, there's a slight discount, but the whole rest of the day, it's just the same. That's it. And it may just be Monday through Friday, too, because I'm not, I'm not getting these discounts wherever they exist. I'm not receiving them. Interesting, though. I'm glad that it seems to be encouraging more people to go to the movies, hence the, the box office gross is going up. You know what I think it is? I think it's a lot of kids are going to documentaries. Let's get the doc busters. Let's try to create, like, uh, children going to more documentaries, you know, won't you be my neighbor? I bet, you know, we need to get kids lined up for that, I feel like. Mr. Rogers' documentary? No, I think that's our next news story. Children are responsible for the spike in documentary <laughs> viewing in America. Come you on. heard it here first, folks. Come on, Free Solo, RBG? You know, they love them. <laughs> well, that was a lot of math, so it's a good time to segue to some tech and gear news. Here's Charles Hain. Hello, this is Charles Hain. I'm here with tech news this week. First up in tech news, Insta360, who are sort of owning the independent 360 capture space, announced a brand new workflow for 180-degree 3D capture with their pro cameras. So there's a whole lot of like modern buzzwords in there. What does all that mean? So first off... Uh, Insta360 is really very dominant in this space right now. They came out with like the $3,000 to $5,000 360 immersive cameras that are like way more sophisticated than anything that came before and sort of made, you know, the Nokia Ozo, which had some features the Insta360 doesn't have, but with $60,000, like they almost immediately were like, no, thank you. We are done supporting this camera now that Insta360 is out. Um, so they're doing a lot of interesting, fascinating stuff in the space. And 360 obviously points a lot of different lenses in a 360-degree field of view so that you can look in all directions. Very interesting. One of the interesting things about it is because you're shooting these cameras in all these directions, you actually are capturing 3D stereo in all these directions. You don't just need... You need two different views, but you can take any of the two views from the Insta360 and create a 3D image out of it. 
The fascinating thing about this isn't just that they're doing it, because it's not actually that complicated to do for most 360 capture, it's that they've built a really simple workflow for doing it within Adobe Premiere. So the thing with 360 is it's not always just about the complications of capture, it's also about actually executing it, being able to do it on the equipment we already have in a simple workflow. Adobe's worked really hard for 360 tools and seeing this integration roll out so quickly, the, three, the Insta360 Pro 2 only came out a couple of months ago. So seeing these integrations f roll out is pretty exciting for the platform. Up next, Laowa has launched 12 new lenses for PL, EF, MFT, and E-mount. And uh, the, the PL mounts are the really exciting ones here. There's a lot of great in the list of MFT and E-mount, Darren James, one of our writers, did a really great breakdown of all the lenses. And there's exciting stuff there, but it's like Laowa making MFT and X-mount lenses, not that surprising. Laowa does a lot of lenses sort of in that world. but And they also do really weird lenses. We have the 24mm macro for a couple of weeks over the summer, and that lens is so much weird fun. No, the exciting thing here is the PL mount. Laowa coming into the cinema space, being yet another option, and Laowa really has a great reputation for doing really interesting lenses that are often very affordable. And so it's going to be really exciting to see. There's no pricing yet, but they have like sort of a really nice range CineZoom that opens 2.9 available in PL. And we're curious to see. We think the pricing will probably be pretty aggressive knowing Laowa and the image quality will be pretty good. Is it going to give you everything a $50,000 Ingenue Optino is going to give you? Probably not. Um, but there are going to be certain jobs where it is the right choice, and it's really interesting. It's an exciting move for Lawa to step up into PL. They have done a lot of mirrorless stuff in the past, a lot of interesting weird stuff in the past. PL, with like all of the classic PL uh, features, repeatable focus with 0.8 pitch, all of that stuff. So hopefully this is a sign that the really indie, like maybe even we can afford it indie stuff, is a space that's heating up. Last up this week, Adobe has changed Project Rush into Premiere Rush. Now, Project Rush, if you don't remember, was a thing they announced over the summer or maybe even the spring. No, over the summer at VidCon. And it is a platform for editing projects everywhere that is designed to be seamless and painless. Meaning, I'm on set, I'm shooting, I'm capturing with like the iMac on set or whatever. I capture it into Premiere Rush. Then I got to drive from one location to another. I got to drive from set back to the office, say. I pull up my iPad. I keep working. Same media. No hard drive. It's all pulling off the cloud because the iMac on set put it on the cloud. I get back to the office. I get on another iMac. I bring up the same project. All the work I did on the drive back is already there. I keep working. I go home that night. The client emails another note. I make a quick tweak, and I upload it from my iPhone at home. That's the dream of Premiere Rush. And so it was launched as Project Rush in June. They've now released it officially as Premiere Rush. We got some hands-on time with it before the release. Look, it does not have every feature under the sun. But interestingly, you can move projects from Pro Premiere Rush into full-fledged Premiere. So, like, there might be scenarios where you upload into Project Rush on set, Premiere Rush on set. You work on it in Premiere Rush for a while, and then when you're ready, you bump it up to full Premiere. You can't go backwards. A full Premiere project will not move over into Rush. Obviously, this is being heavily marketed at, like, YouTubers and, and whatnot, and that's definitely going to be a big component of its world. But I actually also think, like, there are probably, like, tutorial videos that we make here that we might want to do in this because it's going to be easier to fix little edits more quickly there. I think that there's probably clients we all have that are notorious for sending 
billions of last minute changes where the ability to like open it up on your phone is going to be pretty cool. The way it does it is like if I'm cutting on my computer in ProRes, say, it makes H.264 proxies to the Adobe Creative Cloud, and then you're working off those proxies when you switch over to phone or iPad, and it automatically back uploads those in the background. If you shoot stuff on your phone, you can add that to the Premiere Rush project. Um, there's a lot of sophistication that goes into it. It's a really simple interface, and you're not going to have every tool. You're not going to have everything. You can do a little bit of audio. You can do a little bit of LUTs. You can do a little bit of titling. It's a simple tool set. But frankly, for some things, a simple tool set is all you need. It also does something interesting, which they call um, progressive reveal. So like your timeline is initially just a timeline. It's not like a video timeline or audio timeline. It's just a timeline. And the video and audio stays together in like one clip. And then when you need to work in audio, you can split them into video and audio and manipulate them separately. But I kind of like that idea. For 80% of an edit, you're just working with your video and audio paired together. So why even worry about them ever slipping out? I don't know. I think it's a very interesting idea. Um, I think there's going to be, you know, much the way I know a lot of professionals used iMovie for certain things. I think there might be some things that we do in Premiere Rush, uh, especially for those super high-maintenance last-minute clients. All right, everybody, I'm off to NAB New York at the moment. If you're listening to this Thursday morning, it is the second day of NAB New York, so you missed my moderating a panel with Sigma last night. But if you're here today, Thursday, at NAB New York, try and find No Film School folks and say hello and check out all the cool stuff on the show floor, and I will see everybody next week. And now for Ask No Film School. Ask No Film School. Ask No Film School. Pedro Portella is a wedding videographer, and he wrote to say that he has an idea for a documentary that he wants to make, and he has a lot of questions about how to approach it. He particularly wants to know if you need to get a contract from your main characters and how documentaries are funded. Liz, help Pedro out. Okay, Pedro, there's a lot to unpack here, but first I just want to say congrats on coming up with an idea that you love, and I hope you go for it. So as far as how documentaries are funded, that's a big topic. And in fact, our very last interview podcast from Monday is called 100 Different Ways to Get Your Film Funded. So I encourage you to check that out as a place to start on the funding question. I do want to focus in on one part of your funding question because I think it's really important. You wanted to know, is there any case where it's advisable for someone else, in particular the subject, to bear some of the costs of the film? So there's a maybe and a big no here. It's okay for other individuals to give money toward the making of your film as part of a crowdfunding campaign or as investors or as donors if you go the nonprofit route. But I would strongly, strongly advise against having the subject of your film put any money towards it. This is just asking for trouble down the road. The biggest consideration is that you need to be able to have the freedom to tell the story the way you want to tell it. And if your subject has a financial investment into the film, they might feel that they have a right to make demands about how they're presented. And that could really be problematic down the road. Now this gets back into another part of your question about your relationship with your subject and whether they should sign some sort of contract. Now, everyone you film should sign an appearance release that basically says they understand that they're being filmed and that you own what you shoot and you can use it however you see fit. There's a lot of templates for these online. For your main subject, you may want to go a bit further, signing some kind of exclusivity agreement that says you're the only one that has documentary rights to their story or other kind of stipulations that protect you and the subject. But keep in mind that trust is the single most important factor in building a relationship with your subject. So you might want to like get to know each other a bit and give them a reason to have confidence in you as a storyteller before you ask them to sign some you know, elaborate contract. 
And I think part of it, too, is, is just from the beginning, having an understanding with that person back and forth that you really are going to be there in their life. You know, think about the extent to which you want to be there in their life. And if they ever don't feel comfortable having the camera pointed at them, they can just tell you that and you can say, OK, and put it down. Now, if that happens too much, you might need to have another talk where you say, hey, listen, I, I really want you know, want to be in this with you. And to capture your story, I'm going to need to have the camera on more. But the point is, you want to always let them know that they have some sort of breathing room if they need it. I think that's key to that trust building that I talked about. And the longer time you spend with them, the more used to having the camera around they're going to get. And it sort of, you know, it sort of works itself out, generally speaking. Anyway, uh, Pedro, I wish you very good luck and uh, keep us posted. And now for some movies opening this week. Coming to Amazon Prime Instant on October 18th is Slice. A24 opted for a straight-to-video release for this horror comedy in September, bypassing a theatrical release in its entirety. And now it's coming to Amazon Prime. Slice is the feature debut from Austin Vesley, who has been a close collaborator with Chance the Rapper over the past decade, shooting many of his music videos, including the wildly popular short for Sunday Candy. Chance himself stars in this film, as well as up-and-coming actors Zazie Beetz of Atlanta fame and Joe Curie of Stranger Things. It tells the story of a city that suspects supernatural powers are at play after a pizza delivery driver is murdered on the job. So I guess he gets sliced and he's delivering slices. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, God, same. <laughs> there are a ton of great indies coming to theaters this weekend. It's a big theatrical uh, opening weekend on Friday. First up is An Evening with Beverly Luff Lynn. Jim Hosking's follow-up to The Greasy Strangler is similar in tone, but thankfully much less gross than his film debut. John saw this one at Sundance where the director took the stage and made mention of what everyone in the audience was thinking. Quote, yes, I am the exceedingly normal-looking person that makes these incredibly fucked-up films. An Evening with Beverly Lefflin certainly falls in line with that sentiment. It features a ferocious performance from Aubrey Plaza as a woman named Lulu Danger, which is also Eric's niece's name. That's true. Um, <laughs> whose unsatisfying marriage takes a turn for the worse when a mysterious man from her past comes to town to perform an event called An Evening with Beverly Lefflin for one magical night only. The film contains oddly hilarious performances from the likes of Craig Robinson, Matt Berry, Emil Hirsch, and Jermaine Clement, who John got a chance to sit down with, along with Hosking and screenwriter David Wyke, for an interview back at Sundance. They talk about Hosking's unique directing style, how he has actors tie specifically awkward gestures to dialogue, or even replaces lines with grunts and moans. You can read more about all the strangeness in John's article, An Evening with Beverly Lufflin, How Jim Hosking Makes the World's Most Eccentric Films. Opening on October 19th as well is Wildlife, which is Paul Dano's feature film debut, and it's finally coming to theaters this week after a year of traveling through the world's most prestigious film festivals, including Sundance, where it debuted. According to John, who saw it at TIFF, it's a really great film from which you can still get a sense of Dano's trademark sardonic humor, only this time it's crafted through the lens of a camera. Dano and Zoe Kazan adapted the screenplay from a novel about a boy who witnesses his parents' marriage falling apart after his mother finds another man. It features outstanding performances from Jake Gyllenhaal and particularly Carrie Mulligan, who navigate breezily through comedy into drama and back again. And first-time writer-director Elizabeth Chomko's drama What They Had is hitting New York and L.A. theaters on Friday and rolling out to more cities next week. This one also premiered back at Sundance and screened at TIFF. It features an absolutely top-notch, or where I come from, we say tap-natch, cast with Hilary Swank, Michael Shannon, Blythe Danner, and Robert Forster. 
Swank plays the daughter of Forster and Danner, who comes home at the urging of her brother, played by Shannon, to help care for her aging parents. Several reviews have called it one of Swank's best roles, and having just rewatched Boys Don't Cry to interview Kimberly Pierce for my other job, I was reminded what a singular talent uh, Swank is. And if you're wondering how a first-time director scored such an awesome cast, I bet some of it had to do with the fact that her screenplay won the Academy Nickel Fellowship in 2015. So if you've ever considered applying, it seems well worth the effort. Shout out to Peter Sarsgaard, Boys Don't Cry. That performance is pretty crazy too, right? Everyone's excellent. Yeah. Chloe, Chloe Sevigny is amazing in that movie too. Yeah, I, I forgot like how powerful it was, and I again had to revisit it. It's twenty. It's the twentieth anniversary this year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also opening on October nineteenth is mid nineties, which is the directorial debut of actor Jonah Hill, who also wrote the screenplay. It takes place in California, and yes, in the mid-90s, and focuses on the skateboarding culture as a young boy who spends his days at home either with his single mother or with his older brother, played by Oscar nominee Lucas Hedges, who beats him up all the time. The young boy becomes attracted to this culture and gets in with a crowd that means well, but drinks and smokes and does a lot of skateboarding and partying that may lead to becoming ultimately a bad influence. Still, none of these young men are ever judged unfairly, and Hill really gets excellent performances from each. The dialogue is harsh and frank, the unexpected violence unflinching, and the cinematography, shot in the square, boxed aspect ratio, is gritty and appropriately filled with grain and desaturated imagery. Uh, It's a coming-of-age movie, and if you're thinking, oh, are there mid-90s references? There are. There's Bill Clinton Halloween masks, Nas t-shirts, video game cartridges, and Seal's Kiss kiss by a Rose or Kiss from a Rose? Kiss by a Rose, right? I'll be kissed kiss by, by a rose. rose. I think it kiss is by. by a Rose. Kissed by a Rose is playing in a restaurant early in the movie as well. And it was a nice little touch for us 90s uh, people who have lived through the 90s. I hope Seal has a cameo in the movie. I, I'm not telling you that part. <laughs> you know what? I heard Jonah Hill interviewed this morning on NPR. Yes, I'm an NPR nerd. Um, talking about the film. And it was interesting. He said the single most moving experience of his life was casting the non-actors for this film and seeing them sort of inhabit the roles who were based on kind of his own friend circle growing up. Yeah, they're all very good. They're, some will compare it in some ways to Kids, the Larry Clark film, but it's it's not anywhere near as kind of icky as that. It is more <laughs> narrative-based. But uh, Harmony... Chloe Sevigny again. It's Chloe yeah, Sevigny Yeah, exactly, yeah. And Harmony Corinne, who wrote Kids, actually has a small cameo in mid-'90s. Uh, so the influences are definitely there. Um, also, opening October 19th, now this is going to be a big one, is Halloween, which, foolish me, I always thought it was on the 31st of October. <laughs> nope, nope. But uh, Michael Myers is back, and this time David Gordon Green is behind the wheel. While the Halloween franchise has gone through many sequels and remakes, this one seems to be special due to its talented team behind the camera and an endorsement from John Carpenter himself, who owns an executive producer credit on the film. But what do Seal and Chloe Sevigny think of it? They say skip it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they haven't seen the other ones, so, you know, I, I, I take Seal by his word. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis also holds an executive producer credit and is back playing Laurie Strode as she comes to her final confrontation. Yeah, right. Final? Come on. It's never the final. With the aforementioned Myers, a masked figure who has haunted her since she narrowly escaped his killing spree on Halloween night four decades ago. The film premiered at TIFF last month to extremely positive reactions, and it's one of the most anticipated films of the year for a lot of people. I'm going to be going on Friday night, actually. Uh, it's going to be spooky and hopefully a lot of fun. I just rewatched the original, and now forget all the other sequels. This one is a direct sequel to the original, so I'm excited to kind of go back into that world. And uh, in a very, very similar film... <laughs> <laughs> 
I also want to remind you that Alexandria Bombach's incredible Sundance documentary On Her Shoulders that we mentioned last week when its 25-year-old subject Nadia Murad won a Nobel Peace Prize is hitting theaters Friday also. It's really a great weekend for indie films. And now for ticket prices only being $8.83, let's just go to all of them. Whee! Now for some upcoming grant deadlines. With a deadline of November 1st is the California Documentary Project Research and Development Grant. California Humanities offers grants from the California Documentary Project that are intended for films that have some kind of connection to California and strengthen the understanding of the humanities for the state, and the grants range up to $10,000. CDP research and development grants are designed to strengthen the humanities content and approach of documentary media production in their earliest stages. Projects must actively (laughs) involve at least three humanities advisors to help frame and contextualize subject matter throughout the research and development phase. And actually, the California Documentary Project also has a deadline for their production grant on November 1st. This one's if you have a work in progress for a film that features humanities in the state of California, and it can range up to $50,000 for production. These grants are designed to strengthen the humanities content and approach of documentary media productions and help propel projects toward completion. So for this one, projects must be in the production stage, have a work in progress to submit, and actively involve at least two humanities advisors, not three, such as in the research and development grant. So if one has dropped out since your research phase, you're fine. Uh, And these folks help frame and contextualize the subject matter throughout the production process. And for some festival deadlines, the deadline of October 25th is the Atlanta Film Festival, which takes place April 4th through the 14th, 2019 in Atlanta, Georgia. So this is the late deadline, uh, and it will be its 43rd year and is the Southeast preeminent celebration of cinema and the flagship production of the Atlanta Film Society. And it's also an Academy Award qualifying festival. Uh, this is a weird ATLFF, ATLIF, let's go with, has been named a top 50 festival worth the entry fee and one of the 25 coolest film festivals in the world by Mom, um, who loves this festival. Mom loves Atlanta. She does. She likes Freaknik. She also loves the show Atlanta, Mom. Uh, present, the festival presents local and international works selected from over 6,000 submissions representing 40-plus countries, and cash prizes ranging from $500 to $1,000. I bet that's a fun festival. It's a fun city. Yeah. I, I've never been to Atlanta, but I hear it gets pretty crunk. <laughs> wow. You've never seemed whiter. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> there's no video on this podcast, I hope. Anyway, so on October 25th, another party town, the Newport Beach Film Festival has a deadline. It's actually the last day to apply for their autumn discount. See, they also know it's fall. Yeah. Um, this one takes place in Newport Beach, California from April 25th to May 2nd, 2019. It screens a diverse showcase of more than 300 films a year to over 54,000 attendees. It's a top 100 reviewed film festival on Film Freeway and on Movie Maker's 50 list. It also has tons of prizes, so definitely worth checking out if you like prizes and the beach. And speaking of party cities, uh, the deadline of November 1st is Athens International Film and Video Festival, which takes place April 8th through the 14th, 2019 in Athens, Ohio. Oh, raise the roof. Uh, Let's go for it. This is its 46th year running, but the party never stops. Uh, (laughs) It's it's an Academy Award qualifying festival in the short narrative and animated short categories, and cash prizes of $1,000 are awarded by guest jurors for feature documentary, short documentary, experimental, feature narrative, short narrative, and animation. But Eric, exactly how crunk do they get in Athens, Ohio? Oh, Athens, they get they get 
they get pretty crunk. I think they get like anti-crunk. If you measure, they get so crunk it's anti-crunk. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. The, the, down there, they have the festival directors named President Donald Crunk. They, they get really wild oh, no. down there. They do. They do. Athens, Ohio. That is the best thing I've heard all day. <laughs> and speaking of good things to hear, Eric, are you ready to share some weekly words of wisdom? Ah, uh, yes, yes. I remember it like it was the other day because it was. We briefly mentioned Free Solo last week, the latest documentary from Jimmy Chin and E. Chai Vasarheli about climber Alex Honnold and his attempt to free solo the free rider route on El Capitan. So the free solo means that he's climbing without a rope. And the El Capitan is a 3,000-foot overhanging granite monolith in Yosemite Valley that no one had ever free soloed before. Our own Oakley Anderson Moore, who is a climber herself, chatted with the filmmakers over on the site last week, and it's an excellent conversation about the ethics involved in documentary filmmaking and the dangers that are present when a filmmaking team is capturing such an intimate, dangerous act. So the whole interview is is very interesting in having things of, if we do have a production crew, is this going to affect his free solo climb, and could this potentially put him in more danger? And are we filming a act that's going to end in death. Like, there are all these questions that they had along the way, and they discussed that with Oakley. So I encourage you to check out the entire interview. Uh, But just to give you a little brief part, Roster Haley had recalled in the interview that, quote, Alex signed up right around when Maru, their previous film, was finishing, and we thought it was going to be a character portrait. It was Alex who was like, if we're going to make a movie, I want to free solo El Capitan. That's the only movie-worthy thing I can think of doing. It really made us step back for a few months and think about if this was something we were willing to be involved in. He had changed the game and the risks involved. Ultimately, filming will change the narrative. It affects your subject. The idea that the risks were so high was very difficult for us to negotiate. Ultimately, we came to the understanding that this was something we should do. We trusted Alex profoundly, and we were some of the best people to do this uh, because they've also been climbers themselves. And again, the whole interview kind of goes into the things that could have gone wrong and why you should have a small crew for something like this. And it requires very, very specific type of talent. To f- and I hear he pulls it off. He does pull off the free solo. So they Spoiler alert. I'm sorry. Sorry. He is. But he is alive. I don't want it to sound too grim. Um, but there was quite a lot of danger involved in that. That's so, so interesting. Like, we, we do talk about ethics of documentary a lot, but it usually has to do with, like, you know, are you the right person to tell someone's story if you're from outside their community? Or are you exploiting your person? It's not usually like, like, might the person die in service of the film? Absolutely, yeah. And actually, what's also interesting is the intro that Oakley wrote about where she had filmed a climber who, uh, I believe, a few months after she filmed or interviewed him, he passed away from climbing and it and went wrong. Uh, so it's just like this is a very real thing that could happen. You have to consider that when you're going to take on something this monumental and dangerous, technically. And this week in shout outs, shout whispering, outs. it's the opposite of a shout, get it? Oh, yeah. it's a whisper out. Yeah, so in shout outs, it's not me for once. No, I have a shout out. Yes. But it's it's more of like a eulogy. Kind of, unfortunately. Oh, God. Uh, Here in Brooklyn, yeah, in Williamsburg is Videology Bar and Cinema, which is a really cool, small micro cinema that also has a bar and 
lots of cool events. It's not just screenings, but there's movie trivia, Oscar trivia, which I've brought up a few times, which won three years in a row. But unfortunately, they're going to be closing their doors on October the 27th, uh, which is very upsetting. It's a cool. I'm going to go in uh, sometime this week just to to pay my final respects. And actually, John just had his short play there. Uh, he did a feedback screening there in September, and that took place at Videology. So they were always available and around to have a screening room for up-and-coming filmmakers. Yeah, they were truly independent, and they had they they meant a lot to the film community here. Yeah, and the Twin Peaks bingo. I mean, you know, these are these are valuable things that it's gonna be sad to see go. Um, but unfortunately, they are closing their doors. Videology itself, as a video store, had been around for 15 years. And then the past five or six, they converted it into a bar and screening room to kind of, uh, you know, transition into a new phase. And now they're going to be closing up. So I just wanted to give them a final shout out. And if you are in Williamsburg over the next two weeks and you're done visiting the Apple store, uh, just head on over there and buy one drink and say goodbye. Yeah, thanks, Videology folks, for all you've done for filmmakers and independent films in uh, in town and we hope that whatever you all are doing next, it's something awesome. And that brings us to next Monday's podcast. It's another one that I recorded up at the Camden International Film Festival last month. And this time we're debating a hot topic. Should you edit your own films? I speak with two documentary makers who had films in the festival, Irene Lustig and Dominic Gagnon, who have decided that the answer is yes. We talk about the zillions of decisions that go into an edit and how you make them when you're on your own. And I have to say, I'm very skeptical about this. I usually discourage people from editing their own films for so many reasons. And these two filmmakers like kind of brought me around. I could really see where they're coming from. So if you're considering whether or not to edit your own work, or if you just want to know how the mind of an editor works, definitely check out the episode on Monday. Meanwhile, you can read about all this and more at nofilmschool.com. Everything we talked about on the show, we'll link to in a podcast post this week. And of course... Uh, If you love the show, which we know you do, because we love you, you love us. It's just a big love fest. You can subscribe to the No Film School podcast uh, wherever you find your podcasts. And it means a lot to us when you give us those ratings on iTunes. It also helps other people find the show. So uh, I guess that's about it. Stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Uncle Eric. I should change my Twitter handle, right? You know, it sounds a little creepy. Uncle Eric? That's very creepy, actually. (laughs) Damn, I'm stuck with this for the rest of my life. (laughs) I think you got to stick with at Eric Lures. Okay, I'll stick with it. It's Eric with a K, everybody. (laughs) At Uncle Eric. It sounds like a serial killer. And we're all at Uncle No Film School. Oh. No, we're all all on Twitter, at No Film School. And we will see you next week. Thanks, everybody. 